Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books in Catholic Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. This channel and episode were created in collaboration with the American Catholic Historical Association, the Conference of Scholars, Archivists, and Teachers of Catholic Studies. My name is Allison Isidore, and I'm a host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Margaret McGinnis, uh, a professor emeritus of religious studies at LaSalle University and author of Catherine Drexel and the Sisters Who Shared Her Vision, published by Paulist Press in May 2023. Although Catherine Drexel has been the subject of several biographies, they have tended to treat her as a perfect human being, whom the church later transformed into a saint. Catherine Drexel and the Sisters Who Shared Her Vision moves beyond the story of the heiress individual's life Uh, devoted to God and shines a light on the work she did assisted by the Sisters of the Blessed Sacrament. Catherine Drexel uh, and the Sisters Who Shared Her Vision is a critical biography of this American saint written within the context of the religious order she founded. It ties her sainthood to the Sisters' ministries to Black and Indigenous communities, Dr. McGinnis carefully examines the work uh, that Catherine Drexel and the sisters accomplished, bringing a critical perspective to this important ministry in the church. It deepens our understanding of these communities and renews our commitment to the difficult ongoing conversations about race in America. Dr. McGinnis, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Nice to be here. Uh, So, Could you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself before we dive in? So when I listen uh, to some of the podcasts that I, and I've had a chance to listen to some of them, they're quite good, by the way. Oh, thank you. Um, You know, there's folks at all different points in their career, um, which is really, which is really very interesting. And uh, I'm kind of in the final uh, (laughs) stage of my career. Um, I, finished graduate school in 85 and began teaching at what is now Cabrini University, um, which is about to close in May of 2023, unfortunately, and then moved to LaSalle University in 2006. Um, Although I'm Professor Emerita and officially retired, I'm still reviewing manuscripts and (laughs) reviewing books and I'm kind of uh, as busy as I was when I was teaching, I was thinking today. Um, you know, why if I'm retired, am I so busy at Christmas time? You know, <laughs> I don't have to grade 100 papers. And I've taught, uh, when, I, when I did my graduate work, it was called, the field was called American Church History. Fortunately, we don't call it that anymore. Um, it's much broader and much more inclusive and um, and much more 
uh, kind of committed to bringing in diverse voices and um, groups that have not really had a voice before. Um, but it was very oriented towards kind of a Catholic Protestant Jew mentality. That was, in fact, the big book by a sociologist of religion. That was the title, Catholic Protestant Jew, um, as if that was it, you know, in this country. Um, so it's been kind of really fun to um, to watch the field change. Um, and I guess it's especially fun because I support those changes. And so I I, I was at the New York Historical Society yesterday and I was thinking how exhibits are so different now, you know, and I I said to someone I was with when I was looking for a dissertation topic, I wanted to write on religion and working women and there weren't enough sources available. And now there's whole exhibits on them, you know, <laughs> it's 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 wonderful. So um, so that's that's pretty much the story. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a great story, in my opinion. Um, but before we really dive into the nitty grittiness of your book, I was wondering if you could tell us how you came on to this topic, right? What about Catherine Drexel and her story made you want to write about her or focus a critical lens upon her? Well, I had written two books about nuns previously to this one. I had written one on a very small New York religious community called the Sisters of Our Lady of Christian Doctrine. And I had written a book I called 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 to Serve, A History of Nuns in America. And, um, you know, you finish a book or a dissertation and you're sort of like, well, what's next? You know, what, where am I going to go? Now, once you're over the trauma, you know, <laughs> of finishing it, and I thought, well, you know, Catherine Drexel is a Philly person, and um, several people have told me that their grandmother sat on her lap when they were children. I'm pretty sure that if everyone who says that, if that's true, she didn't do anything but let kids sit on her lap. But, <laughs> but, but you know, people around here who knew her, I mean, she died in 55, and so... I mean, my my generation didn't know her, but their parents knew her or their grandparents knew her. And uh, Philly is such a small town mentality in a big city um, that that she's kind of a hometown hero, you know. And at the time, um, I knew that there were these phenomenal archives, which we'll talk more about later, but these phenomenal archives. And I thought, well, it would be nice to have a project that's local that, uh, you know, I don't have to get travel money for, that most of what I can look at is right here. Um, and I started working on the topic. I got very interested in it. And then um, the SBS archives moved over to the um, what are the archdiocesan archives because they were selling their property and their mother house and so on. And they needed a space for this massive, massive collection. And the archdiocese had just turned over and aband uh, abandoned a closed school to the archives. And so the archives had this space for it. Um, so I, so they closed for over a year because they had to pack up and then they had to unpack. And then COVID came <laughs> and, and everything shut down. 
So um, the project stalled off and on. And at times I was calling archives and saying, you know, I just need this one thing. Is there any chance you could just look at it for me? You know, which they which they did because archivists are great people who who do that. So that's that's how I got into it. And then, as everybody who listens to this podcast knows or or who's involved in in the ACHA, then you go down rabbit holes into other things. I mean, then I didn't know I'd be writing about um, the issue of race until I got into the story. I mean, I knew I'd be I knew I'd be addressing it, but I didn't know how I'd be addressing it. Um, so that was, but it started out as just a, yeah, this would be a fun thing to look at a, a Philly saint, you know, and a, and a Philly figure and see what people that I talked to around here thought about it, you know, and that's always fun. Yeah. I mean, I think that's how a lot of us get into the research that we do. We find this like one interesting document or we hear this really interesting story from a friend or a a family member, and we, like you said, dive into a rabbit hole of endless papers or oral histories and really just get absorbed into this story. Right. And, and there you are. <laughs> there you are. <laughs> I think people think there's something mystical about it, mm. but it's, it's not really very mystical. <laughs> it's my experience, you know. Right. Yeah. Um, so, getting start you start the book really at looking at her her home life or her pre-vocation life uh you know drexel and her biological sisters as you distinguish in the book elizabeth and louise um came from a very privileged and wealthy family they inherited uh 15.5 million dollars from their father uh, after he passed in uh, 1885 uh, so how did this wealth uh, impact the sisters' view and practice of Catholicism and charity? Um, so let me let me start with a little preface to that, to my response, um, which is what I've discovered is that when you write about someone who's a saint, there's myths and legends that surround them because uh, the process of saint making it demands that. And um, it's a very, you're trying to prove something, you know, and, and so you're, you're very deliberate about what you focus on and what you don't focus on. And you try very hard to address any potential problems in the easiest way possible. In terms of Drexel's background, the, not the legend, but the simplified version of the story, uh, I've called it the sanitized version of the story, was um, she's born into a very wealthy family. Her grandfather was really a self-made billionaire by today's standards, um, who made his money in the world of finance. Um, her father and her uncles inherited that world. Um the Drexel, Drexel and her sisters continued to inherit that world. Drexel, Drexel's biological mother dies when she's an infant, month, month or two old. Um, and her father remarries 
um, a very devout Catholic woman. Uh, yeah, very, very, very devout. I mean, let's put some let's put some italics in there. And she raises her one biological daughter and her two stepchildren, who she considers her own children, uh, to be very devout Catholics, and the family is very devout. Now, the interesting thing about that, and I and is that it's because of her stepmother that the family is very devout. Drexel's uncle, who's the Drexel University founder, marries an Episcopalian woman, converts to Episcopalianism, funds a very nice church in West Philadelphia, you know, kind of uh, moves into the upper crust of Philadelphia WASP society, which uh, apparently a lot of Catholics did, although I need to explore that a little bit more. But in any event, Drexel's mother, um, and this is one of the weird parts of the story. Well, Drexel never really knew that her mother was not her biological mother. And and when you start to think about it, you think, how, how is that possible? Once you start puts dates together, once you say, mom and dad, what year were you married? You, know? <laughs> you do the math and it, you know, you, you pretty much come up with, oh, okay, what's, what's going on here, you know? But her mother really believed that her daughters needed to be taught how to spend this money. And certainly they had to take their place in society. Drexel is a debutante, you know, um, but they also had to and I would use the word charity deliberately because it really was charity in the 1850s, 1860s, 1870s, um, to sort of uh, give to those who didn't have what you had. And whether you did that by providing toys at Christmas or whether you did that by running a little CCD program, which they did, or whether you did that by um, Drexel's mother would have people come and literally ask her for things, you know, say, gee, the kids need coats or um, our windows broken and we don't have money to fix it. And so so they're very trained in the art of personal charity is what I would say. Um, her father, on the other hand, as as the male sort of figure of wealth sits on boards you know i mean he funds he funds things he funds hospitals he funds orphanages he funds schools but he sits on boards he's he he's got more of a corporate way of looking at things but her mother is really training her daughters to do to do this very personally to use their money very personally to give to you know, the children of their servants to give to the children in the neighborhood who are not living um, on the estate <laughs> where the Drexels live. And it's it's interesting to me that Drexel almost combines both her mother and her father's way of um, what becomes philanthropy, really, um, in her own work where on the one hand, you could write to her and say, Mother Catherine, I need $200 for a roof 
for the boarding school for the, um, the children on the reservation in in South Dakota. On the other hand, she could found a university, you know, <laughs> so she's so she's kind of combining both the corporate and a personal way of giving away her money. Um, yeah, it's it's interesting, but she's definitely trained. You're right, Allison. She's definitely her parents definitely teach them that that as not so much wealthy Catholics, but as wealthy people, they have a responsibility to the poor. Right. In some ways, it it, it reminds me of a, a a gospel of wealth. You know, mm -hmm. the 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 Andrew Carnegie ask of this is how we deal with our money it's founding these schools or public places that people can enjoy our wealth as well i i think that's exactly right it's an andrew carnegie approach it's not a walter rauschenbusch approach it's not a social gospel you know it's not let's look at the system it's let's look how we can help yeah very much although as as a good Catholic, Drexel would never have, you know, <laughs> would not have at that time have called it that. But it's 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 pretty close to a Catholic equivalent of that, uh -huh. for sure. Yeah, I mean, it was also really interesting in terms of her journey into religious life. You know, that was one of the most fascinating things, is because several people had told her not to do it. You know, not join an order. Um, could you talk about Drexel's vocational journey and her founding of the SBS? You know, it's interesting to think about what would have happened if Drexel's parents had lived past her young adult stage. Would they have insisted that she find a suitable husband? Um, her mother's sister was a woman religious. She was a, a, a sacred heart sister. And really kind of the, the story was that when her aunt decided to become her, that her mother's family were Bouvier's as in Jacqueline and Bouvier Kennedy Onassis. And um, when she decided to become a nun, she had to kind of walk out the door. You know, she had to say, I don't care if you don't want me to do this, I'm, I'm going. You know, and the story was something like, I love you, but I love God more or something very, you know, dramatic and and very kind of quotable. Drexel's parents don't really encourage their daughters to go into religious life. I think they figured they would become wealthy women, again, who would use their wealth to help the poor, but who would continue to live on I think it was 15th and Walnut, you know, in Center City in the family mansion. Um, and so so had her parents lived, I don't know that she would have discerned that she had a vocation. I don't know that she would have been given the opportunity to. Who knows? Maybe maybe she would have. But in any event, after her father dies and she clearly has some kind of um, sort of depressive issue and and also um, kind of a questioning of what am I doing? What's going on? Um, and I'm not a psychological historian, so I don't I don't go into that very much. But it's but somebody could really do something with that. But in any event, she starts to think that to believe that she is indeed being called to religious life. 
her sisters are apparently fine with it. They they kind of say, okay, you know, <laughs> um, that's fine. We're we're good with that. Um, who's not is Bishop O'Connor, a, a family friend who's the bishop of it would be Omaha, Omaha, Nebraska. Now it starts as a vicariate and then becomes the Nebraska territory and all that. And I am fully convinced, along with some other folks, that it was a question of, well, what will happen to her to the money? You know, if if she becomes a sister of mercy and says, here you go, sisters of mercy, here's the money. And I, O'Connor, ask for money for my uh, school for indigenous people in the Nebraska territory. What are, they're not going to give it to me, but she's going to give it to me, you know. And and he's really, I think, kind of very mean to her about the whole thing and very chauvinistic and very belittling and very misogynistic. You know, I mean, the, I could continue, you know, but but that's probably enough. And at one point he says to her, well, you're just not capable of being a woman religious. You just don't have what it takes. Um, and and, you know, she definitely wasn't born to be a second grade teacher. There's no question about that. But she had other skills that that had what it takes. And she she stands her ground, you know, I mean, for sure. And finally, she says, you know, I'm not sure you can really tell me what to do in the end. And he says, well, now I've thought about it. And I think you do have a, vo a vocation. I've never been more sure of this, you know, in my life. And... And then it becomes, well, where? Where am I going to be a, a woman religious? And he he does, I think, um, help to convince her to found her own congregation um, for, I think, a wrong reason and a right reason. And the wrong reason is the money. The, and, and jump ahead, he dies before she takes vows. So he doesn't really get, get to have that. Uh, but the right reason is, if you really want to work with Black and Indigenous people, you're going to have trouble finding a congregation that only does that. Um, there are congregations that do that work, but they're also in urban centers. You know, the, the Franciscans in Philadelphia are on schools on reservations, but they're also staffing schools and hospitals in Philadelphia. And you might not ever work with those people. You you might be in Philadelphia your whole life. And so she and he and he kind of says to her, you know, the contemplative life just isn't a good one. Um, bishops in general didn't like contemplative nuns because they they depended for financial support on outsiders. And those are the outsiders that bishops were also depending on financial support from. <laughs> so there's lots of stories about you can't come in my diocese. You know, you have to you have to go somewhere else. But but he is right about the fact that to do that work, um, she was going to have to go her own way. You know, um, her sisters are very interested in supporting projects related to Black Americans. She's originally more interested in Indigenous people. But when her sister Elizabeth dies um, in the very early, I think in 1890 or 91, the very early stages of this, she and Louise take some of her sister's projects on. 
and and follow them through. But but it's very interesting that um, that she kind of comes to this late. You know, traditional stories are: I went in after high school. Well, Drexel didn't go to high school. She had tutors and governesses and things like that, and so she didn't have you know, a high school with sisters teaching in it, who, when she talked to them about it, would talk to her about it, would even talk to her parents about it. She goes a completely different route, which is which is a story for someone working on on vocations, you know, and how people found their vocations and and how they found support for their vocations. Right. Yeah. 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 I mean, yeah, that's there's so many different projects that can just offshoot from this book I think things on the psychological or not psychological but um yeah psychological history as you were talking about in terms of her mental health at the time of her parents death and how that connects to vocation all of which would be perfectly normal you know yeah. what I, mean? I mean some some young woman who loses both parents within a couple of years of each other and finds herself one of the three richest women in America. You know? Yeah. I, <laughs> I think mean, a lot of people would be questioning what they what they do. Yeah. Now. What what am I supposed to do with this? And and uh what what does this mean? You know? <laughs> right. What does this all mean? Yeah. I mean, those are very reasonable questions for yeah, some very reasonable <laughs> questions. And very and very anxiety producing. Yes, you know, and it it makes me even more interested in the fact that she becomes, as you described this, this one woman foundation, right? Uh, she's playing this like dual role as the foundation, but also superior general when SBS becomes its congregation. Mm -hmm. uh, and you even talk about the the issues with, that she kind of runs into being a part of this hierarchical system of power in which women religious defer to the authority of male clerical leaders. They have to. They well, have to. I mean, they have to or they'll be, oh, they'll be, you know, um, what's the word? They'll be fired. You know, I mean, for lack of a, for lack of the proper ecclesiastical mm -hmm. term, you know, but they'll, yeah, a uh, mother Theodore Guerin, you know, who if uh, if you don't get out, you know, I'm going to throw you out, sort of thing. And she does use her money in that sense. Um, she's not a political advocate for it. I mean, she occasionally is. She, her, uh, one of her brother-in-laws is a congressman for a short while, and another one um, is very involved in kind of. Uh, financial and and local leadership circles and she does manage to get word through them about things but she basically does it with her money you know i mean um there's that horrible quote by the paulist priest walter elliott when he says you know apparently you have to be brown or yellow or red to get her money you know no whites need apply i mean it's an awful quote but it's so but he meant it. I mean, so I mean, what he's saying is that's right, Walter. I am not giving my money to white people. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's it's such a paradoxical world she's walking in. Uh, this, you know, and I'm curious, like, in what ways she challenges the system. I mean, you just talked about a little bit, like talking in someone's ear who's a 
within the systems of political reach, right? And how her money is really doing a lot of talking, but anything within the church, anything within those hierarchical structures she's able to do? Only as far as helping black and indigenous people. Um, I think issues, you know, like women's ordination were just worlds away at that time. Um, she did when when the um, when women are allowed to vote in the 1920 presidential election, she does tell all the sisters to vote. Um, and she continues to encourage them to vote. Um, she does ask all of the superiors and all of the convents to write letters to Roosevelt in support of an anti-lynching piece of legislation, which I think, you know, finally gets passed a couple of years ago, uh, seriously. Um, but she does support that. Um, she does um, contribute to the NAACP in a quiet, you know, financially. Um, it's almost as if she knows that if she's a an upfront, outfront person, it will hurt both her and the NAACP. And so, but by giving money, she can help what they're, what they're doing. She dies, of course, before the civil rights movement. And so she's not, you know, she's not funding anything like that. Um, but, but at the same time, and, and stop me if you want me to, to not go off on this, but, but at the same time, she doesn't challenge um, kind of the system. You know, she doesn't admit black women into the congregation. I mean, I, I'm not going to stop you there at all. This is a perfect transition to the next one of the next questions. <laughs> she's she's um, and I don't know because I just didn't see anything. I don't know if that bothered her or not, because where I found the information and where everybody's found the information, it seems to me, was in the congregational annals which she wouldn't have written, which someone else would have been assigned to write them. Um, she would probably have approved them. And she, I, I don't know, different superiors handled it different ways. But, you know, um, Mother M Matilda Beasley came to Ben Salem and asked if they could, her sisters could become part of the novitiate. And the congregation talked about it and said no. And Drexel didn't argue the point. Now, what I don't know, actually, I shouldn't say that. I don't know whether she argued for or against it, but whatever the decision, but, but that decision was the decision and it was accepted in the end by everybody. Now, I don't know. It, it, I'm sure she would have said she prayed about it. I, I don't, <laughs> whatever that, whatever that might mean, but, you know, and she claimed there were three reasons. She said that it would, it would, uh, inhibit fundraising. Um, she said it would, um, she was worried it would take members away from the three black congregations of women religious. And probably the only reason that made any sense at all is the third, which is she could not send black and white sisters on the same mission in the South because the laws would not allow them to live together. And she couldn't, she couldn't fight that system of segregation and inherent racism at that time. 
that's the only one of those three reasons to me. But even then you could say, well, we will admit black women, but we won't send them south. Or, or we, you know, when we admit you, you understand you'll be working with indigenous people or with, um, with blacks in the northern parts of the country, you know, Chicago, Boston, Philadelphia, that we, we won't put you in danger or, or your sister, your congregational sisters in danger. But, you know, it seems to me there were ways to work on that. And if not in 1891, 1892, when this all goes down, certainly by the 1910s or 20s, you could have had that conversation. And from what I can tell, they did not. Um, there were certainly women from schools where the sisters taught who wanted to enter the congregation. They were kind of steered towards the black, towards the Oblates and the Holy Family Sisters and the Franciscan Sisters of Mary. And Drexel sent money to them a lot. I mean, she paid their dowries. She kept in touch with them, but she didn't admit them. And it's not really so she stops being the head of the congregation in 35. She has a lot of health issues by then, probably congestive heart failure by today's standards. She becomes an invalid, for lack of a better word. She can't travel anymore. I mean, there aren't, there, obviously, there's not the medical technology there is today. And by, you know, by the late 40s, she's 97 when she dies. She's probably got some dementia. There's a lot of writing about Mother Catherine's childlike demeanor, you know, which is, again, before we had words like Alzheimer's and dementia and, you know, other other diagnostic terms. Um, and it's the sisters who say in the South who say, you know, everybody's talking about this court case that's going to desegregate education which is Brown. But of course, they're talking about it two years before Brown, because there's all those lower court cases out there. And, and even the sisters at Xavier are saying, you know, we have to change our charter that says we will admit white students as well, because if, if this court case happens, even if we don't get many white students, we have to accept them. And so, and by then, she's on her deathbed. And it's not clear to me that she ever knew that Black women were admitted. I, I don't know. I mean, what is someone at that stage of life? You know, I think I think the sisters like to think she knew the way we like to think our parents or our grandparents knew things. But, you know, hard, hard to say. Right. Yeah. And I mean, this is one aspect of your book that I really appreciate is you're talking about these, you know, issues like Drexel is sometimes seen as this patron saint of social justice because of her work with indigenous and black communities, but she wouldn't necessarily fit like our contemporary definition of like an anti-racist. Absolutely not. She just, she just wouldn't. I mean, there isn't, I don't know. Uh, you, you know, I was the part of the, that part of the book, that section's pretty short and, it, and it's short because it, it just, it is what it is. You know, I mean, I can't really analyze why she's not an anti-racist. Just look at her work and look at, at her life and the fact that she dies in 1955 before the term anti-racist existed. Um, she did in other ways. I don't want to say she was ahead of her time. That's that's a 
phrase that doesn't really make any sense a lot of times, but she did, you know, at one point she's writing to John Lafarge, who's a white Jesuit who's involved with um, black Catholics. And she says, and he has a little um, magazine and she says, well, you know, shouldn't you ask the people what, what term they want to use, you know, and she says, you know, my experience in asking is that they prefer colored people. Now, this is, I forget if it's the 20s or the 30s, but it's in there, to Negro or, you know, whatever other terms would be out there. Um, so she does, she does think about these things in ways that people are not thinking about very much. It, at that time. Um, I mean, nobody would ever say, could I ask you, uh, you know, the New York Times would like to know how you prefer to be, you know, <laughs> to be discussed. And But the magazine that the sisters put out also has words that are that are very offensive to Black Americans today that, that were not offensive then, but I wouldn't even use them in the book. You know, um, because it's just embarrassing and they're embarrassed, you know, <laughs> by it. Um, but but so she did think about this stuff. She didn't, I think, have the influence to do anything about it. But I don't know that her head was in a place to do anything about it either. Well, I mean, I mean, in the end, she's a wealthy white Philadelphia woman who chooses to use her money for good, but never, I mean, she never walks away from her background. And, and that, I mean, okay, that's, that's okay. But she, but the fact is she doesn't. Right. I mean, I think this is something that many of us should keep in mind when we do this type of work on individual people, like real right. world people, because despite her being a saint, she was a person. She was a person. She was a person. And I, and I think, um, you know, I think in the end she did her best. Yeah. And, and by 2023 standards, was it enough? No, no, not at all. Um, by 1930 standards, was it enough? Well, it was more than anybody else in the Catholic church was doing. Yeah. That's for sure. Which doesn't mean it's enough. <laughs> But it's but it's more than anybody else was doing. Right. Well, there's two directions we can go in now. We can talk about the congregation itself and how they've worked, or we can continue talking about race and uh, maybe some of the uh, problems within the Catholic Church and within SBS. Um, so which direction would you like to? Well, we can do both. I mean, which which is easier for you to keep going with? I mean, I think talking, I think what we really need to talk about the most is uh, the residential schools, you know, yeah. um, it, it, it would be amiss if we did not talk. It would. Uh, so, about that. So I start using the archives. They're in the mother house in Ben Salem. The archivist, a woman named Stephanie Morris, who does not move over to the archdiocese when they go there. She retires, a lay woman. And she says to me, you know where you ought to start? You ought to start with the annals, with the congregational annals. And I said, okay. And at the time, 
I thought, all right, so they're not going to let me see these annals up till the present. So where am I going to end? I'm going to run around 80, 85, something like that, you know, 40 years. And I'm working through them. And at the same time, I am working on the chapter on the SBS in Philadelphia, because I'm I want to give a paper on that. And that's kind of, you know, you're always looking for a chapter that's sort of self-contained. And I think, well, this is a good self-contained chapter. You know, it's the city and the collar counties and I can write about that. And so I'm using the annals from those convents and, and, you know, annals are hit and miss. I don't know how much work you've done in them, but you know, some are good and some are not. It depends on who's keeping them and it depends on, how interested they are and, 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 you know, they can be really fascinating and they can really say, end of the school year, time to go, you know, and, and that's it. So I'm working through these annals. Everything shuts down. It opens back, um, shuts down, COVID comes, it opens back up. You have to go in by appointment. That's fine. I'm in the, in the research center in Philadelphia. I'm using the annals and I go in one day and Sean Weldon said to me, um, we have a problem. The sisters have just closed the annals to researchers, like literally the day before. I mean, I left. I used to leave about two o'clock to beat the traffic home. So literally after I left at two o'clock, they closed the annals to researchers. Now, yeah, so I kind of said, well, I won't tell you what I said on the podcast, but Sean and I had a had a long, you know, commiserating. He was he was angry because he didn't think it was their call to do that. Um, but it was in their agreement that they could. Now, the sisters hadn't read the annals. They were worried that the annals would talk about an individual sister in a way that put her in a bad light. Now, in all the annals I looked at, and I did look at, I, I managed to get through a bunch of them, but not enough. Before they closed them, I never saw anything about an individual sister other than, you know, sister so-and-so probably shouldn't teach third grade. We maybe better put her in sixth. You know, I mean, ah, you know, I shouldn't teach third or sixth. So no worries. So I started using secondary sources, you know, I mean, dissertations and, and places where the annals had already been, been published because I'm in the middle of this thing. I'm in the, and I'm using correspondence and I'm using letters and I'm, I'm using all sorts of other things. Fast forward and Patrick Hayes and the grant that the ACHA got to look at indigenous residential schools happens. And Patrick asks me to be part of it because of the SBS. And I say, certainly. And the SBS lawyers say, absolutely not. This collection can't be part of it. So all of that is to say that when I say in the book, I never saw any evidence of abuse at residential schools, it doesn't mean it's not there. It means I never saw it. And so I couldn't write about it. Okay. Now, I worked in the Boston archives uh, 
in between my master's and doctorate, and I never saw anything about priests and sexual abuse. Obvious, and we talk about that. Jim O'Toole and I talk about that, how we never saw anything. And we think, how did we, you know, because they had two sets of books, you know? So I, I think that any that any records of abuse at residential schools for indigenous children are not in archives. They're either non-existent for whatever reason, <laughs> or they're in, you know, they're in a legal file someplace. And somebody's gonna have to figure that out someday, you know, because this congregation and this kind of now we're tying it those two themes together. This congregation is coming to completion. They're not taking new members. So the day's going to come, next 20 years, when there aren't going to be any SBS left. And I don't know where those records are or if they exist. Now, okay, so that's like part one and two. Okay, <laughs> part three. I know I have found... Somebody has pointed me towards one instance of um, some women in South Dakota that have filed a lawsuit that includes SBS sisters. It was at a school they did not run but taught at. It was a Benedictine school. Uh, it was Marty Indian School. No, it was. It's now Marty Indian School. It was St. Paul's. I couldn't remember which 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 was which. Um, and the only stuff I can find is in like, you know, the Sioux Falls Tribune kind of thing. I can't find much. But I am not saying the abuse didn't happen. It's it's actually, if I understand the story correctly, and I don't have all the facts, I don't think, it was priests that were the abusers. And these women are are suggesting that the sisters knew about it and didn't do anything, which may which may well be true. It is also possible that 18 and 19-year-old women who had been in an all-girls Catholic high school and then went into a religious congregation would not understand what was going on. Do, do you know what I mean? And I'm not forgiving them and I'm not <laughs> excusing them. Ignorance is not bliss. You know, but um, but it may not have gotten into the rec records because when a, when father so and so came to get a kid, it never occurred to them that that's what was happening. You know, which is not to say it wasn't, and not to say that somebody didn't know, but maybe some of those individuals didn't know. You know, it's very murky, but it's got to be looked at. Right. Yeah. It's I mean, looked at. We really can't not talk about these schools without dealing with the legacies of abuse or settler colonials, and we can't not talk about those things. We cannot, and and not just sexual abuse, but physical abuse and cultural abuse. You know, I mean, they're all, and and certainly, um, there was a movement in the SBS schools to take away, to strip the indigenous people of their heritage and their culture, as there was in all indigenous schools. Um, the SBS, like other congregations, did make it a point to visit 
indigenous families in their homes did make it a point to attend festivals and and um and celebrations and things like that but that doesn't you know what i mean that that again it it doesn't mean it was okay right the stripping away of a language stripping away of, right of a language stripping away of clothing of the way you wear your hair of of how you eat you know and what food you eat and and how you visit your parents and all that stuff i mean no question and and i don't know in the sbs case i don't know what the answer is it's very frustrating you know <laughs> to to be honest um but it is their right not to let people see that stuff. Um, it's bad. It's bad for history. It's bad for me. It's bad for other people working on all, and not just working on the SBS or Drexel, but working on, on indigenous schools or working on Catholicism and indigenous culture or, you know, or what it's, it's very bad. Um, and as far as lawsuits go, you know, most religious congregations don't have much money anymore. So I don't, I don't know what's in their, in their heads about this. I just, and I want to be, I want to be empathetic, not sympathetic, but, but I talked with someone um, who reminded me how difficult it must be to know you're a member of a congregation founded by a saint who was one of the three wealthiest women in the United States and you're nearing completion and there's no money. You know, like how how difficult that must be to kind of process that. You know, so I so I do understand that that it is a tough time for the, for the sisters. Um however, <laughs> ellipse ellipse ellipse, you know, it's yeah, it's very difficult. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was wondering if you can talk just a little bit more about say their teaching and outreach. I mean, you mentioned it a little bit there, talking about taking indigenous children back to visit family and visit uh, ceremonial things. What else did their outreach and teaching look like? How is that different than say other religious orders at the time? Well, so some would have followed the Carlisle Indian School philosophy of, of you know, sort of keep the person uh, and I'm going to, you know, and get rid of the Indian. And I'm using that word deliberately because that's what Carlisle would have used. Um, others would have, others would have done what the SBS did and, and tried to be, I don't know, sympathetic's not quite the right word, but, but tried to be understanding of the situation that the children found themselves in um, and tried to be, so, so Drexel, and she would have put this, she would have inculcated this in the SBS, believed in, for all the right reasons, that the way Black and Indigenous people were going to fully integrate into U.S. society, and she believed they should, so whether that's good or not is, you know, um, would be by education and not... To her, for her, not education, not the Booker T. Washington model of Black education, but that Blacks and Indigenous people should become doctors and lawyers and pharmacists and own insurance companies. And because 
because she knew that when you had the money, you had a voice because her family had the money and they had a voice. And so when she built Xavier, for instance, she was very clear that this was a four-year classical education that was going to turn out professionals. You know, that this was not, that that carpenters and, and, and welders were fine and necessary to our economy, but what, what Black Americans needed were doctors and lawyers and pharmacists, among other things. And today, still, Xavier sends more Black students to medical school than any other American college or university. So, and it's not rocket science what they do <laughs> to, to do that. I mean, it's a very clear program. It's very well structured to, you know, they beginning of freshman year, they take the MCATs and they're told, see what you got? You need to get this. You, you know, I mean, it's, it's all very well done. Um, and every school should do it <laughs> for everybody, really. Um, the mystery to me, and that worked for Xavier. I mean, it and it worked. Um, it wasn't just Black students from SBS schools, but Black students from other schools. Xavier's part of the H, uh, HBCU network. Um, it is a mystery to me that more Indigenous students did not go to Xavier. Hmm. And that more indigenous students did not, um, uh, you know, were not funneled into college by the SBS. Now, St. Catherine's Indian School in Santa Fe, by the 1870s and 1880s, was making, was really advertising, you know, look, we're sending students to Notre Dame and Yale and, and University of New Mexico, you know, that we need to send them Again, we need to send them to schools away from here because they need to go where they can get the best education possible. Um, it is a mystery to me my, why more did not, you know, why why what happened in the indigenous schools? And I so there are three schools that the SBS found and fund. There's St. Catharines in Santa Fe. Um there's St. Michael's, which is the only one still open on the edge of the Navajo Reservation in Arizona. And then they don't found uh, Marty Indian School, but they're very involved with it, and, and they she gives them a lot of money. It is interesting to me that they never worked with Xavier, at least, at least what I can find, to kind of funnel those high school seniors there. And I don't know, I'm not suggesting there's anything, you know, nefarious involved in that. I I just wonder if they worked in two different areas. Do mm. you know what I mean? Um, that if you were if you were on the Navajo reservation, you were so busy being on the Navajo reservation that Xavier was just the farthest thing from your mind. And I think today, St. Michael's students do go off the reservation to college. I'd have to, I'd have to check their website for the most recent stats. But I think they certainly get enough of them into community colleges in the area to then get them to Arizona State or U of Arizona or whatever. 
but it doesn't the the education of the indigenous pe uh, children does not work the way Xavier does. Now, mm. to be fair, I don't know that she could have built two colleges, you know, just financially. Right. Uh, it, it, there's only it, so much money. <laughs> there's only so much money. And, you know, by 1935, between the Depression and income tax, she doesn't have much anymore. And, you know, a lot of the students who go to Xavier are not necessarily SBS students. They're from they're from other places. Um, and so Xavier, although it serves black Catholics, and that's what she wanted it, non-Catholic, you know what I mean? It, it's used for, not used, it, it, other students were drawn to it right. for its programs, for its, you know, for its location, you know, for whatever reason, high school seniors pick a college. So it, it, there is a disconnect there. There is a disconnect there. Um, and I've got to think about that some more. I'm not, I'm not sure I really know the answer why. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think we have time for two more questions. Um, okay. And so you mentioned in the book that the, after Drexel's death in uh, 1955, the, the congregation changes its style. Um, and I was wondering if you can talk about how that changed after her death you know how did vatican ii challenge and or change uh this relatively young order at the time yeah i loved it in your question that you said relatively young order because it was compared to compared to a lot of them well so vatican ii you know is 62 drexel dies in 55 so it's a pretty close it, it's it's coincidental but but close timing nonetheless um, and the SBS really go through what other congregations of women religious go through, um, moving out of convents and into apartments, um, choosing ministries that are not necessarily, they are, they are always related to Black and Indigenous people, but saying, I really don't want to teach in a school, I really want to do social work, or I really want to um live and be with the poor and advocate for them um and in fact i i listened to um the podcast on in the shadow of ebenezer and unfortunately her book came out just too late for me to for me to use it and reference it in you know in my book because hers came out and mine was done but not out yet um but that it's in my pile to read because it's it's that's Our Lady of Lords is an amazing story and and that they do get involved in the civil rights movement and Mother David does say as long as it's nonviolent you can you are free to participate. I don't know how many do again close annals you know <laughs> um, but enough do enough do and certainly in um, in the Diocese of Lafayette which at the time had the most black Catholics of any diocese in the country. I'm not sure if that's true today, but, and it had a lot of SBS uh, sisters teaching in schools and they get very involved and they get very involved in the integration of Catholic schools and how that should work. And well, how 
how come everybody's going to go to the white school? You know, why aren't, why aren't, you know, half of us, you know, grades one to four going to the black school and grades five to eight going to the white school? They, they ask really good questions um, and, and really advocate for more than paper integration, you know, but for real integration. And that's all Vatican. I mean, it's a, it's a combination of Vatican II and the civil rights movement and the women's movement and, and other movements for social justice. Um, and they lose a lot of people the way religious congregations lose a lot of people. And again, I don't know, I don't know the numbers, you know, I mean, they're, they'd be available in any of their annual reports to the archdiocese, but they, you know, they begin to lose people and less people are joining. And which is, which is sort of unfortunate because at that time, that would be a congregation that would interest young women. You know, young women would right. say, you know, I don't want to enter religious life to teach fifth grade in the suburbs. I, I want to work with indigenous people. I want to advocate for better education for black Americans, you know, but, but society is, you know, I mean, the whole, there's such a, a, a combination of forces that are happening at the same time. And you know, they, they are, they are, they are governing differently. They have different terms of office. They have a leadership team. They don't have a mother superior, you know, they, they vote for who, who's going to lead the congregation. And so, yeah, it impacts them a lot. And of course, at the same time, they've got to give up a lot of places. Right. I mean, really St. Michael's and Xavier are, are the two main ministries that are left. There are some there are some sisters at smaller ones that when those sisters retire or are no longer able, you know, to be an active ministry, they'll be gone, you know, but I think Xavier and St. Michael's will probably stay. They'll be they'll be the legacies. They'll be the, the SBS legacies. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, my last question for you is, you know, are there any lingering questions from your work on Catherine Drexel and the sisters who sh shared their vision or her vision um, that you're planning on pursuing in another work? I mean, it sounds like you have some questions you, you want to dive into. I yeah, I do. And I'm not I'm not sure, you know, um, I've been thinking lately of <sighs> You know, this whole question of, of women religious and child care is kind of interesting. And and the SBS, I don't think would have called it child care, but they were residential schools on indigenous reservations and boarding schools in some cases um, for young black girls and women. Um, and I've been kind of thinking about that and what that, you know, <laughs> what what that might look like. We've done very, I mean, nobody's done too, too much on that, on, on what that all meant to have. Um, I mean, there's residential schools, but there's a host of other things that, that go along with that, you know. Um, but I'm really in the, eh, let me think about this some. But, um, but I would like to look I think a little more at um, at the work of the SBS in the Diocese of Lafayette, hmm. because I really didn't get to that because of COVID. I had every intention of getting down there. And, you know, just eventually I had to say, I, I got to finish, you know, you're doing your dissertation. You eventually you're going to say, I got to finish this. I can't. 
Right. Yeah. <laughs> I can't, I can't go one more step. You know, I've got to, I've got to shut this down, but I, I do kind of fascinate it with the whole Lafayette story and this, these string of rural schools along the bayou and how they become parish schools. And, and I've talked a little bit to Mike Pasquier about that, you know, and haven't talked to him enough, but a little. Um, so those are the two things I think I would, I'm considering looking at. Okay. Down the road. Yeah. I mean, after those the holidays. <laughs> after the holidays. <laughs> Well, uh, Maggie, thank you for being on the podcast. This has been a lovely conversation. Thank you for having me. I, I really appreciate it. And uh, and good luck with the with the first weekend in January there. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I know it's not a break for you right now. But... <laughs> uh, well, this has been uh, New Books in Catholic Studies, a podcast on the New Books Network.